you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, whatever they may be, turn to Second Timothy and chapter four. Second Timothy and chapter four. And we'll commence at verse 9, and we're going right through to the end of the chapter this morning. And we will finish the second epistle of Timothy, the second letter to Timothy. Thank you for suffering with me and going through this with me for many, many months now. I think it's about 15 or 16 messages that we've gained from Second Timothy thus far. And God willing, this will be the last so follow with me, please, and bear with me if I don't pronounce the names like you've always pronounced them, but we'll do the best we can. And the Word of God says, Make every effort to come to me soon. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Verse 11. Only Luke was with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against him. Verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. I'm sure the Lord will add a blessing to his word this morning. Now in reading this last section of Paul's final words to Timothy, we might be tempted to brush over them thinking, well, this is just Paul's way of bringing to close his letter and really it has no relevance to us at all. But as we've been reminded back in the prior chapter in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. That's what we learned, right? So with that in mind, let us look carefully at this section. Thus far as we have discovered... Paul wrote the second letter to Timothy when he was in a dark, dank, cold dungeon in Rome, prison cell. And so here he is, cold and lonely and no doubt at times completely bored. And yet he is full of faith and confidence in the Lord. 
And he's certainly without regrets of anything in his past as a Christian. You see, Paul is fully aware that his departure from this world is near and he evaluates his life before God and Timothy and he sums it all up and he says in chapter 4 and verse 7, which we looked at last week, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. What a man to be able to evaluate your life as a Christian and honestly before God say that. And so Paul, what he does, he passes the baton of his ministry responsibility on to his beloved son in the faith, his protege, as he looks eagerly forward to the wonderful day when he will be with the Lord. Now, that's what we looked at last week. But now in these closing words, fully understanding that his execution of some description uh, was just around the corner, what are his closing words to Timothy in this letter all about? What, is, what seems to be the foremost on his mind as he brings to close this letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy? Was it Timothy? I want you to pursue our 10-year church planting plan at all costs. Was it Timothy? I want you to continue using our well-planned strategies that we have worked out over these last few years on our missionary journeys. Pursue those ministry goals, Timothy. Never let them out of your sight because everything counts on them. Was that it? No, it wasn't. It was not that. It was not the systems, it wasn't the programs, it wasn't the goals that burdened Paul's heart in his last days. But you know what it was? It was people. You hear that? It was people. People were deeply embedded in his heart. And he kind of says this, Timothy, I want you, Timothy, to meet my team. Many of whom you will know, Timothy, but I want to introduce you to them again. I want, to meet, I want you to meet people who have shared my ministry, people who were crucial and vitally essential to everything that I have ever done in the service of the Lord. Timothy, I want you to be reminded of those people again. But that's not all, Timothy, he says. But that's not all, Timothy. I also want to tell you and to warn you of those people who were critical and caused me so much grief. So even though Paul's main point or his purpose in this section, I believe we see this main point and purpose in verse 13, if you can see that, where Paul says, Timothy, please come ASAP and bring the parchments and my coat, please. That was his kind of main point. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And so in modern terms, what we have in these verses from 9 to 22 is... Paul's network of people, Paul's friends and foes who providentially helped shape his ministry under the sovereign hand of God. Now this is a great lesson for us folks right at the very outset before we even get into the text. A great lesson. You see, it's not programs, it's not systems, it's not long-term goals, even as good as they may be, and it's sometimes essentials. It wasn't that that God primarily uses to achieve his kingdom business. It's not those things. Primarily, it's people. Ordinary people like we have here and like you are and I am. Ordinary people. And so 
this reminds us also that none of us can serve God alone. We cannot do that alone. We're not islands. Our ministry is always enhanced and made effective by the Lord as we serve alongside and with others. It's a powerful lesson, isn't it? Even if we left the sermon right there and went home and just dwelt on that and considered that, that would be, that would be great. But anyway, we see here that Paul had a network of people. He had a team of people who were his life. He had those in his life whom he, whom he delegated responsibility to, whom he trusted, those who were faithful and loyal and consistent in his life. But he also had people in his life who were a real pain. They were unfaithful people. There were those in his life who, were, who severely opposed him and his teaching. He had his enemies. He had those who were inconsistent. He had those who, who were never, ever ready or willing to help and volunteer in the Lord's work and work by him. He had those people in his life. And so all these different kinds of people were part of Paul's life and, and he wants to bring Timothy, as it were, up to speed as to who's who and what's going down. It's very much like an old retiring coach passing on vital information about the team to the new young coach who is about to take over. Or can we get a little bit more up close and personal? It's a bit like me, literally the old retiring pastor, passing on the strengths and weaknesses of the new community church team to the new younger pastor who will, God willing, be taken over my role. Well, this is what Paul is doing here with Timothy. Some of the people he mentions, he wants them to come and be with him in his last days for comfort and to assist him in the remaining time of ministry that he had. And so, as he faces the executioner's acts, it is all these people in his life that are deeply on his mind. Now, as I was looking at all this and reading through this, I thought, how on earth am I going to deliver this people passage this morning? You know, it really doesn't lend itself to the three-point sermon with an illustration at the beginning, like all budding preachers are taught in homiletical classes. It doesn't lend itself to that. Actually, you could rightly preach this as a 13-part sermon if one wanted to. But for the sake of time and delivery, I will divide it up like this. First of all, I'm going to be looking at faithful friends in the ministry. And secondly, we'll be looking at unfaithful foes in the ministry. And thirdly, we'll look at our faithful Lord in the ministry. And so the first one is going to be faithful friends in the ministry. And you need to follow along your text because we're going to be jumping up and down this passage. We'll see that we're mentioned in 11 to 13 and verses 19 to 21. You know, twice in these closing words, Paul makes it known to Timothy that he, he wants him to visit as soon as possible. He wants him to come. It's mentioned in verse 9 and also verse 21. And so this, this affirms 
how Paul loved and valued this younger man, his son in the faith, Timothy. So this longing desire of Paul in this text is, is it's, I liken it to the two outer layers of a massive sandwich, you know. You have the big thick bit of bread on that side and the big thick bit of bread on that side. And so this verse 9 and 21, Timothy, come to me as soon as possible, is like the outer layers of a sandwich. And all the people and everything else are in the middle. Okay? And they're all the goodies. And so um, Paul longed to see Timothy before he died. He longed to see him, make every effort to come to me soon. You know, he had no other earthly friend who was so dear to him, nor did Paul have any other co-worker who was as dependable as Timothy was. He confidently and clearly states this fact to the Corinthian church on one occasion, but I want to read it, a similar statement that he made to the Philippian church. This is what he said to the believers of Philippi. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's Philippians 2, 19-20. So Timothy was a dependable, consistent guy. And Paul loved him. So no wonder Timothy is the one whom Paul wanted to spend some time with prior to his death. You know, what, a, what a, an awesome and wonderful example of genuine, dependable fellowship that we see in Timothy. To have a person like that in the ministry working with you and working beside you. But we do see a number of other faithful friends that Paul takes time to place on record here. We have another chap that we don't know very much about at all, but his name was Crescens, and, um, and he, was, he was going to Galatia. So for Paul to send him to Galatia, now if you know anything about Galatia, it wasn't the ideal kind of place to go to. They were a fickle and easily influenced lot, if there ever was one. You read the book of Galatians, which Paul wrote to, by the way, and you'll understand something of their character and their, and their background. And, and so uh, this was all part of the pastor's job. And so, so he, he sends Cretans there. And so obviously Cretans was trustworthy and dependable a servant of the Lord uh, who could definitely take up and handle this lot down there this was the kind of guy you, you give him a task and it gets done don't you love those kind of people dependable that's the kind of man Christians was and so though largely unknown he was a faithful servant and he didn't turn tail when, he was, when the heat was on like Demas did that we'll read of soon when things got tough, this man got going. He was willing and faithful. And then there was another guy called Titus, and we'll know a little bit more about Titus, those who know the New Testament, because Paul wrote him a pastoral letter bearing his own name. And he's another person whom Paul calls my true child in the common faith. We see that in Titus 1 verse 5. Paul had Titus stay on in Crete. And he said, I want you to stay there. I want you to set the churches in order and I want you to point elders over them, etc. and make sure everything is done and decently in order and properly. And so Titus was a, can we say, a builder and an equipper of people. And Paul fully trusted this man to teach struggling churches, which they were in Galatia. Now, to teach and to train and equip 
Churches who are really struggling, I would suggest that takes some true grit, right? It sure does. And Titus was the man. Titus as a younger man, like Timothy, had travelled much with Paul too, by the way. He had learned from the master. He, had, he, he was a uh, disciple of Paul, can you put it that way? And he was regarded as very responsible and trustworthy. And then Paul adds, only Luke is with me in verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Faithful Luke, the beloved physician, the doctor. No doubt Dr. Luke had on numerous occasions cared and looked into Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. He had some medical problem and on occasion he prayed three times but the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so he allowed Paul to continue suffering that impediment of that um, medical issue, whatever it was. And so the fact that Luke was here in Rome in the last days of the apostle's life, it kind of indicates something of his loyalty to Paul and his and his to the Lord and his faith in the Lord, right? It really does. Commentator William Barclay, some of you will know this man of him, he says that it was Roman custom that when a citizen was being taken to Rome for trial, he was permitted to take two slaves with him. That was the common order of the day. That was the the rules, that was the law. So it may well be in order to travel with Paul and to stay close with him and Luke actually volunteered to be Paul's slave. Imagine that. Now if you wanted to be a slave of someone, I'm imagining that most people wouldn't pick Paul, not in this time. Well, Luke did. He stayed with him. And this is suggested here and it would indicate why Luke stuck with him to the end. He was considered to be a servant or a slave of the apostles. So Luke was a long-time companion of the apostle Paul, as you'll also know, and he accompanied Paul on, on many, on, for many thousands of miles and, and his missionary journeys. He was shipwrecked with Paul. Remember when he was shipwrecked? Well, Luke was with him. And he stuck by Luke, Paul's side in his second missionary journey, third missionary journey, and he was with Paul right up in this present time in this Roman prison right up to his execution. What a faithful heart and what a faithful brother in the Lord Luke proved to be. No wonder the Lord chose him to write one of the Gospels and also the sequel to the Gospels, the book of Acts. But we have another guy called Mark. Here's another man or a name of a man that will be familiar to many of us who know the New Testament. See, he was a young man who, who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But he bailed out. Remember that? That's the part we always remember about Mark, isn't it? He's the, he's the guy who crops out. He's the guy who bailed out. And, um, and he left the team shorthanded. And Paul was not a happy chappy. He was not. It didn't go down well with Paul. And as years later, after when he bailed out, they were organising the next missionary journey was Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas says, oh look, I really want to take John Mark because he was, Mark was often called John Mark. I want to take John Mark. I want to give him a second chance. <laughs> but Paul would not have it. See, Paul had no place for those who were lazy, cowardly or uncommitted. No place. 
They argued over this and you know the story resulting in Barnabas and Mark and a team heading one way and Paul and Luke and others heading another way. But by this time, when Paul writes this letter in prison, there had been some changes because it's evident that Mark had turned things around for himself and recovered some respect from the apostle. You know, it's always great news when repentance and forgiveness kicks in, right? You know, when we fall out with someone or some other issue, how terrible it is for that thing just to fester and fester. And sadly, what happens, people part their ways, but never, no reconciliation takes place. But it's a wonderful thing here that we see repentance and forgiveness really takes over. And so now he is back in Ephesus this Mark and Paul asked Timothy to bring Mark with him because why as he puts it he is very useful in serving me that would be a pretty awesome thing to go down on scripture for eternity as your epitaph as it were Jeff Honick was very useful in serving me because when you serve Paul you serve the Lord right remember That's, that's what it was about he was very useful in serving me. I like one of the way the uh, one modern translation puts it. And this is what it says. He is a good man to have around the place. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And I gladly know men like this. They are needed in the ministry. Good men to have around the place. And it's a tribute to Mark that he recovered himself and it's also a tribute to Paul that he found the grace to forgive and forget the weaknesses of the past and giving Mark another chance. It's awesome to see. And as we think about that, none of us really excluded because I think every one of us in one way or another or from some time in our lives as believers, we all need second chances, don't we? We all need second chances. The Lord gives them to us if we come to him in faith and repentance. But do we give one another that same second chance? Well, Paul eventually did to to Mark. Then we see another guy called Tychicus. Tychicus. This is the one whom Paul sends to replace Timothy in Ephesus to carry on Timothy's work there. So he's saying, Timothy, I want you to come soon, but I'm sending Tychicus to sort of hang around and do what's needed while you're gone and making your way to Rome to come and uh, minister and serve with me. He's also the one of... He's also, Tychicus is also the guy who, who, who took the letters that Paul wrote to the Colossians and the Ephesians. And so he's well-known in Central Asia, modern Turkey as we know it today. So he would be a faithful replacement for Timothy when he sets out for Rome. He was known. Even in those distant times, he kind of built a reputation of being a faithful servant. You know, we're not told exactly what abilities Stichikos had, but it seems likely that the Holy Spirit had gifted him with the gift of service, and that is a gift if you go to Corinthians. The gift of service. How we need brothers and sisters with the gift of service and to exercise that gift. Whatever the case, Tychicus was trusted and valuable and a needed friend of the apostle for the work of the ministry. 
Next on the list is a man called Carpus. Not carpet, Carpus. Verse 13 says, When you come, bring the cloak which I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. You know, it's very probable that Paul was arrested in the city of Troas leading up to his final imprisonment in Rome. Very probable. And one can safely imagine this happening so quickly that he had no time to go back to where he was staying with Carpus to collect the parchments and collect his coats. And so he was whisked off, probably not handcuffed, but he was certainly bound, and he was whisked off by the Roman authorities without having time to go home and collect his gear, his treasured gear. Paul was dragged off, and it could well have been on this occasion when Timothy looked on. He saw this happening with tears streaming down his face. How do we know this? Because as we've read in the first chapter of this epistle, and verse 4, Paul says, Even as I recall your tears, because that's the last thing he saw of Timothy. And so Paul asked Timothy now, when you come to me, stop by the city of Troas and go to Carpus' house and collect my cloak and the books, especially the parchments. You see, winter was approaching. Don't forget where Paul was. I think Alex is not here today, but he went to Rome recently and, and brought back a picture of supposedly what was Paul's cell. I think Jordan has seen it too, right? Yeah, it was not a hospitable place. And so winter was approaching and naturally the value of a cloak would have been very needed. But above all, a coat and everything, but above all, it was a parchment that Paul really wanted. All these items, by the way, were very expensive items. Very expensive. The books probably with scrolls of his own letters that he had written, and maybe at this time, maybe at this time, were copies of the Gospels, which would have, could well have been written by this time. But the parchments, these were sheets of vellum. Vellum was sheets made out of animal skins, okay? Which would have contained scrolls of the Old Testament. That's why, no, you just... We have Bibles, we have them in all sorts of versions today. But those days, you know, an animal had to be killed and the skin had to be dried and everything had to be prepared and, and then the right ink used to put on the skins. And, and so you had a stack of skins about that high where we can put it in a little pocket like that. And so these things were very, very valuable and they were very meticulous. And so Paul says, especially the parchments. And they would have contained the, the writings of the Old Testament he wanted these so that he could saturate his mind and heart with the glorious word of God. Isn't that awesome? That's what he wanted, above all. And this man, Carpus, he was a steward of these precious things to Paul. They were of such importance to the apostle. And here he had left them with Carpus, and the time lapse between when he left them and in prison was no big deal to Paul. And he says, just call in and go and see Carpus and pick up the books, my coat, and above all, the parchments. What a trustworthy man. What an awesome steward to keep valuable things. 
His word of caring for what Paul left there to him was as good as a bond, even if, to die for if necessary. How we need stewards. It may not be of parchments. It may not be of books or coat. I'm certainly not going to leave my coat here. I'll just give it to you forever and today. But how we need stewards to care for the things that are precious to God and precious to God's people. But Paul's not finished yet. Paul's not finished yet. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he sees fit to leave on record, on eternal record, old friends, and I'm not having listed them on your screen, but they are Prisca and Aquila, verse 19. They're a great couple, by the way, who, who, who like Paul, they were, they were tent makers by trade, remember that? They were tent makers, and they served the Lord tirelessly with Paul at Corinth and Ephesus as well. Man and wife team, awesome couple. Then you have another guy called Onesphorus who refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of his chains. We read this in verse 16. Erastus, he was serving back in Corinth. Trophimus, he, he was a guy who suffered and travelled with Paul, but he got sick and so he had to be left at Miletus, the city of Miletus. Then we have Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and it says, and all the brethren... So all this is to say, Paul had an awesome network of faithful friends. He was telling Timothy and telling us here right to this present day, we cannot do God's work alone. We need people like this so that we can function just like you need each member of your body for your body to function. We need people like this so the Lord's service, the Lord's ministry can function as it is intended to. But more importantly, the common denominator of this loyal, committed, sacrificial friendship you know, it was not some temporal ideology. It was not because we all go for West Coast Eagles. It wasn't because we all go for Richmond or whatever. No, no, it was something more permanent than that. This was all about having one common goal that had eternal consequences. You see, their friendship and their service and their sacrifice was built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ in which these people and many others like them were prepared to live for and die for if need be. Now, we need to do some evaluating here. We need to ask ourselves, where do we fit in on all this? We need to ask ourselves, am I part of a willing team? Am I a willing member that serves in the ministry doing whatever the Lord enables me to do for the gospel? Am I that? You see, we either are Or we're in the other camp of Paul's unfaithful foes. Simple as that. No sitting on the fence in this one. May we be challenged ourselves to serve and be part of the Lord's faithful team. This takes us to our second point. Unfaithful foes in the ministry. These kinds of people often show up as they did in Paul's life. Matter of fact, he seems to attract these people, doesn't he? (laughs) 
every city he went to, man alive, he was either thrown out, stoned out, or chucked out, or whatever, and yeah, all sorts of things. Um, and he seemed to attract these people. And, and people can, these kind of people can be such a pain, can't they? They really can be such a pain. Matter of fact, they can be so painful to some that it so occupies their mind and thinking and it drives them away from a church, it drives them away from this and they'll offer that up as an excuse while well, this person said this and was against me, blah, blah, blah and, and so, yeah, they cop out. Not Paul. Not Paul. Even though they were a pain, he mentions them. You know why? Because God providentially uses painful people in our lives for his glory. Do you know that? He does. And the first one mentioned here is Demas. He was a guy, it says here in verse 10, having loved this present world, deserted Paul and went to Thessalonica. That's his epitaph. Not a good one. Yes, but when we think about this, Demas, he was around during Paul's first imprisonment. You know, that's the time when he was under house arrest and he had, he had quite a bit of freedom and, and comings and goings of different people. He's also cited in the letter to the Colossian believers. And there he's cited as being Paul's close associate. So here was this Demas, once was an all right guy, spiritually speaking. He also appears in Paul's letter to Philemon. And so here is a guy who once ran well, spiritually speaking, can we say. And it seems then, though, after that, everything turned to custard. The lure of the world became irresistible to Demas and he abandoned both Paul and the ministry. You see, when the heat was turned up, no doubt at this time by Nero, and we've talked about Nero who was rumbling and blaming Christians for all sorts of things. So when the heat was turned up, no doubt by Nero's atrocities, his cowardice, Demas' cowardice, was greater than his commitment. And so what does he do? He deserts Paul. What a woeful caption to be eternally inscribed in the pages of Scripture about you. Woeful. Then we see this Nasty foe called Alexander the coppersmith in verse 14. Who this man really was, we cannot be sure. I like to call, I was going to call him Alexander the metal man, but that's probably quite true. But we do know that Paul details him as one who had caused him much harm. That word much harm is translated from the Greek word, which also means informer. Informer. And so he may well have been the guy who, who ratted on the Apostle Paul and brought about the, his present imprisonment. He may well have been. And so whatever the case, this metal man was bad news. He was the bane of Paul's life. So Paul warns Timothy of, this, of his opposition to the gospel. This means not only was he Paul's enemy, by the way, he was also God's enemy. And being an enemy of God, let me warn you, is eternally dangerous. It's not a good place to be, to be believe you me. Because if you're not a friend of God, if you have not been reconciled to God, 
That's what reconciled is. Once you're an enemy, but now you're a friend. If you haven't been reconciled to God, and you don't know his peace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are no different than this man, Alexander, God's enemy. By the way, Paul reminds us of God's reconciling work in the world through believers like ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, this is what it says. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Then we see that a whole bunch of unnamed, unfaithful people also deserted Paul. They deserted him in verse 16. In other words, when Paul was at his lowest, when Paul really needed believers around him for support and encouragement, at his first court hearing, everyone, what did they do? They ducked for cover, they deserted him in a most crucial hour. The price for standing for Paul, by the way, could have been very high. It could have cost them their lives. Which makes me wonder how I, or makes me wonder how we would have stood in such circumstances. Would we have proved ourselves cowards or would we have proved ourselves committed? Good question, right? Whatever the case, Paul, like Stephen the martyr and like the Lord Jesus in his final hour, he asked that their sin, those who have deserted them, not be held against them. What a man. What a man. My dear people, who needs friends like this unfaithful lot? Do you know what? Paul's foes, like the foes in our lives, as I said before, the Lord providentially uses them to shape and mould us and test us so that we might be proven and tested for the Lord's sake. To prove us, are we going to stand or are we going to fold? So let us show the grace and mercy that Jesus has toward us. And Paul did to those deserting believers that day even though they don't deserve it we didn't deserve God's mercy did we absolutely not he stood for us and did all he did on the cross for us so that's the heart that we should have for others even though they don't deserve it And I wish you now to focus your attention on the faithful Lord of the ministry in closing. You see, this is the most important commitment that undergirds all other commitments and it's the actual apex of this entire passage. So here was Paul on trial. Put yourself in the scene. Here he was on trial where perhaps even Nero himself was watching on Crowds of spectators packed the gallery like when some famous person today is put on trial. But the big difference was not one person at Paul's trial was on his side. 
You see, Paul had some amazing faithful friends in the ministry, but what happened? But they all pale into significance in comparison to this one faithful friend, his Lord Jesus Christ. They pale into significance. And in these few verses, what we see is something of who our living Lord is. These verses, I've kind of put it together, they reveal four things. There are many other things, but for the sake of this message today, they reveal four things about our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first one is that the Lord is sovereign. You see, this is seen in how Paul acknowledges the Lord as the one who what? Who stood with me and strengthened me, what? For, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. You see that? Paul knew that the very circumstance, the timing, the reason and purpose of this death sentence trial was fully under God's control. How awesome is that, folks? How awesome is that? There was no ducking and diving and moaning and complaining on Paul's part here. Woe is me, this is not fair. I shouldn't have been this. And you, you lousy friends who were sent to faithful, you deserted me. There was no complaining. You forgave them, remember? You see, he knew that the Lord had all this wrapped up even including his death sentence. And he said that this death sentence, he knew that the Lord had it all under control. It was going to bring about God's purposes in the gospel, going to Gentiles. Remember, the apostle was an apostle to who? Apostle to the Gentiles, right? So he knew the Lord, his faithful friend, was in all this. And folks, I don't know about you, but the same sovereign Lord is my Lord also. Is he yours? And his sovereignty over everything, everything, including my salvation and your salvation, you know what? That is powerfully comforting to me, and it should be to you as a believer. Even the fact that you are here this morning, how come? Is it fate? Chance? Luck? Or human decision alone? No way. No way. The Lord is in this. You even being here, now is the Lord's doing. You may not think it, you may not feel it, but that doesn't alter the fact. Is the Lord sovereign or not? Absolutely. Over everything. He even knows the sparrow that falls to the ground. He knows the hairs, number of the hairs of your head. And so he knows that you are here and he's orchestrated providentially your being here. So what does that mean? It simply means this. You better give the sovereign Lord of the universe his right due and pay due attention to what he says in his word. Secondly, the Lord is always present. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me, verse 22 says, and the Lord be with your spirit. So this tells us of the Lord's permanent presence and it assures us of the same. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, affirms this present Lord and it says, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. We often quote that wonderful promise, right? And so with this we can confidently say as believers, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid what man will do to me. That's what Paul was saying. 
Folks, no matter how difficult your circumstances, no matter how nasty they can be, if you trust in the living Lord Jesus Christ, His promise is for sure, I will be with you always. Matthew 18, 20. Thirdly, the Lord saves. The Lord saves. You see, Paul testifies that the Lord rescued or saved him out of the lion's mouth and from every evil deed. Now, some would say, oh, well, that means he was chucked into the lion's den. Literally, no, no, this is not speaking about his physical earthly trials or his pending execution. You see, because they were all part and parcel of Paul's short life for the glory of God. His rescue and salvation, he is all wrapped up in the knowledge that the Lord, what does it say in verse 18, will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's the salvation, that's the rescue that he's speaking of here. And so Paul clung to Jesus' words, what Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but will raise it up at the last day. He clung to those tr- that truth. He sure did. Folks, if by God's sovereign grace you have trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, then his promise to you is sure. He won't lose you on judgment day. The Lord is glorious. Paul rightly honored the Lord by saying, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, see that? And so because he is sovereign over everything, including our salvation, our rescue can only be laid at his feet. We're not going to say, oh, well, I made the right decision. Woo-hoo, I'm better than anyone else. No. All the glory goes to him. We lay it at his feet, as it were, for he alone is to be worthy to be praised. For why? For he is all glorious. Amen. This brings us to the close of this autumn letter. This awesome letter. We can only thank the Lord for actually preserving this text down through the millennium that gives us an account of the Apostle Paul's life. You know, how much we owe him. How much he has taught us, even here in these months of going through this letter. How much he has guided and instructed us. You see, most of Paul's friends and co-workers would never see or hear from him again after this letter was written. This was very much his final words from him. But he left them in good hands. You know that? He left them in good hands. He left them in the Lord's grace. May we all be challenged and changed by this inspired text. May we not only seek to be faithful and to seek out faithful friends. May that not only be the case, but most of all, may we all know Jesus Christ through faith as the best friend above all others for his glory and for his namesake. God bless you all here this morning.